The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Everyone ask that? It's a good question. What about church services on Saturday night? Is that kosher? Everyone ask that? Pun intended. What about church on Friday night? What about church on Sunday night? What about church on Saturday morning? Why do you go to church on Sunday? Have you ever thought about that? Now, you got to be careful because if you're reflective of the traditional wisdom in the Westminster Catechism, which was the greatest articulation of the Protestant faith and theology ever penned since the Reformation, which I thoroughly enjoy and highly recommend, except in parts like this where it's discussing the Sabbath, it's easy to equate that Christianity has reduxed the Sabbath for Sunday. That Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Is that true? And is that not? Or is that not? And could you defend your position on your answer? If we're called in some way to honor and obey the sanctifying graces of the Ten Commandments, what do you do with the Sabbath? If we are to worship with the body of Christ on Sunday, why do you choose Sunday? There are six other days. Why Sunday? Take your Bibles for a moment. We're going to back into Deuteronomy chapter 5. But look at Acts chapter 20 for a moment. Acts chapter 20. It's a remarkable thing when you look at the early church, when they met, why they met, how they met. Acts chapter 2 tells us that they met daily. I like that. That they heard sermons daily. I like that. And that they preached a long time. I like that too. But what happens by the end of the book of Acts is you begin to see the meeting time of the early church normalized. In Acts chapter 20, we just have a little footnote that's very remarkable that will give progression in this little uh, ladder I want to take you through, uh, like steps on a ladder, and rungs on a ladder in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it talks about the gathering of the church. And there's just this little phrase. On the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talking to them, intending to leave, and he talks about what he did with the church. The church met on the first day of the week. Sunday, contrary to most modern American calendars, Sunday is not the seventh day of the week. You understand that, right? Sunday is the first day of the week. Why in the world is the church largely and predominantly made up of Jews not meeting on the Sabbath, but meeting on the first day of the week? Well, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 for a moment. And you find that on that little isthmus between the Peloponnesus and mainland Greece, joining of the two seas, joining of the two land masses, where you had a very um, metropolitan, cosmopolitan uh, sense of Jews, Gentiles, all sorts of people coming together. We find this out in 1 Corinthians 16. I think I have the wrong verse. Hang on. Oh, it's verse 2, of course. Verse 2. 
It says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. He's talking about the regular giving of the church. And when does that happen? On the first day of the week, on Sunday. Then we find out something really incredible in Revelation chapter 1. Aaron, I love singing that Revelation song out of Revelation 4 too. So appreciate that. Revelation 1, John is on the Isle of Patmos not attending a worship service, right? We're in a lot of churches on the Isle of Patmos. And yet we find something going on in Revelation 1, verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit when? On the Lord's day. John had determined on the Lord's day, which by this point in the progression of the New Testament church had become Sunday, the first day of the week, that that was a day even John on Patmos in exile as a prisoner set aside time to focus uniquely on worship. That's interesting. Why do we worship on Sunday as Christians rather than Saturday, which is the seventh day of the week, as the Jews do and were commanded to do, and is that in effect today? Well, if I can give you a little head start and look from the beginning of our sermon to the very end, it's very simply this. The reason that Christians worship on the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week is that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. God rested on the seventh day of the week. And Christianity, from the very beginning, determined that redemption and salvation were a greater work to celebrate by a day being given to the Lord than creation. So, we have to ask a question. Great. Wipe our hands of the Sabbath, move on. What do we do with the fourth commandment? Now, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're working our way through the Ten Commandments, as we've said all along. All of these commandments tell us and inform us on some dimension of honoring others, protecting the rights of others. The Fourth Commandment has a dual purpose. It protects the rights of others, promotes their rights, and it also honors and protects God's rights. Deuteronomy 5 contains the reiteration of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of Moses. Remember, they're sitting on the stand, standing on the plains of Moab. They're the new generation. The old generation has now died off. Moses was disallowed to cross over the Jordan to go with them. Joshua was, was anointed as the new leader. And Moses is giving them their last marching orders. Those last marching orders include sermons about the law, reiteration of the law, Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. He's reminding them of what Moses had received from the Lord and commanded them. Well, we find the fourth commandment after verse 11, which is the third commandment, in verse 12. Very interesting. The fourth commandment is verse 12, 13, 14, 15, and it expands from what's gone on in Exodus 20 and is a fuller commandment here than it was back then. Let's read it together. Moses says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son 
or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you up out of there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Theologians say this commandment has the most apparatus or the most writers, like a contract, a writer that goes along with it, than any of the others, and they are correct. It's the longest commandment. It's the most detailed commandment. It's the most informing and informed commandment. It's the most qualified commandment, and it's the most applied commandment. And yet, the Christian seems to think something like this. I heard it, uh, I've heard it said, I read it again this week. All of the commandments are in effect for the Christian except the Sabbath because all of the commandments are reiterated in some form in the New Testament except the, the, except the, uh, the Sabbath. I'd say nice try, but that's a swing and a miss because if you believe that, you've never read Hebrews chapter 4 and we'll get there. The Sabbath is extremely accented and extremely modified and extremely augmented in Hebrews chapter 4. What do we do with this? What do we do with with the, the fourth commandment? Is it in effect for us? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 2, he'll tell us in a few weeks as we get there, that the law of God is written on our consciences. Isn't that interesting? If you travel in the remotest part of the jungle, you're certainly going to find that to be true. People know that right is right, wrong is wrong, killing is sin, lying is not good. They know that intuitively and instinctively. There's a universal understanding of these things. Stealing is not good. Taking advantage of another person's spouse is wrong. There's, there's something ugly and bad about a child who disobeys his parents. Those aspects of the law are clearly written on the conscience. But... You will search long and hard to find a conscience that knows little of Scripture that feels bound to the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? You can go in pagan societies and they all have something about killing and lying and stealing and cheating, but you won't go into any pagan culture and say that you need to set one day a week to worship the Lord and to rest. They know little of a six-day work cycle. There's something inherently different about this commandment than all the others. Note for a moment some of its unique characteristics. It's the first of two commandments that are phrased in the positive. It has an unusual amount of apparatus, as we said, attached to it. It seems mundane at first at glance. It's compared to the prohibitions against uh, stealing and and killing and adultery. And it seems like, really, you're going to put a day in there about this? But there's another way of seeing the fourth commandment. It might be understood as not the most mundane, but actually the most comprehensive and the most extensive and the most specific in that it touches every dimension of our life in some form or another. Our vocations, our relationships, our relationship with God, the earth, each other, and ourselves. The Sabbath has something to do with us honoring God and othering and honoring others in ways that the others don't. This is a positive, honoring, encouraging, exciting part of our worship. 
By the way, it not only regulates our worship, but it also regulates how you do your job. And you've got to be careful because if you're one who says the Sabbath is still in full force today, I hope you don't have a weekend off and you just have one day off. Because the Sabbath encourages a six-day work cycle with one day off. You've got to be careful. If you want the bottom line for a beginning, to, a beginning understanding of the fourth commandment, you can say it like this. God is concerned about every area of the believer's life, even what he does for the 24 hours of the Sabbath. Now, with all that as a backdrop, it's important to carefully draw our primary understanding of what the Sabbath means for you and me from the text itself. Now, let me, uh, let me uh, have a disclaimer here from the beginning for a moment. Uh, time's not going to allow us to study every issue uh, related to Sabbath law. The Sabbath is, is commanded before the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath is explained in the prophets, held accountable to the, the pagan cultures. The Sabbath has a lot of nuanced uh, meanings and accountabilities. We don't have time uh, to do that uh, tonight. It would take, uh, it would take a, a series to look at all of that. But I wanna, what I want to do is give a sweeping theological understanding of the Sabbath because I think it'll be helpful for understanding the Sabbath and also understanding the intention of the Lord's Day and their connection and continuity and their disconnection and discontinuity. Now, as I was looking at this uh, over the previous days, I was, I was alarmed to look at the commentators because very few of the men who write on the Ten Commandments unpack this subject as fully as they do the others, and yet this one is longer than any of the others. If pages and pages on thou shalt not kill, pages and pages on don't commit adultery, pages and pages on uh, not, not having idols, and then two or three pages on the Sabbath, it seems like everyone's terrified about what this means and what it, how it applies because it's not exactly clear. This is kind of the hinge of Old Testament, New Testament, law, grace, uh, uh, what it means to be saved in a covenantal sense, what it means to be saved in a New Testament sense, and yet there's less discontinuity between those than you might at first observe. What I've tried to do for this evening is kind of frame up the Sabbath theologically, and to see what God might have for us in the details of this commandment itself without becoming Sabbatarians. Well, we have to observe the Sabbath on Saturday and not do any work on that day. Now, let me just move through the text really briefly and talk about a few things. Then I want to come back and capture all of it with some theological and practical observations. I think that's the best way to tackle this. Let's go back to the text, verse 12, observe the Sabbath day and keep it separate, holy. Holiness is an interesting word in the New and Old Testament. Holiness has a a highly religious, God-centered meaning in one sense, but it also has just an absolute practical sense of separateness, separate from something. He's saying separate that one day from the rest and make it different, make it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. He did that back in Exodus chapter 20. Obey the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Um, in fact, in, in Exodus 20, he says, Remember, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, that's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You are your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. Then he gives this uh, insight in Exodus that he doesn't give in Deuteronomy. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's not contained in Deuteronomy. Now, we have to say why. Why is it different here than it is in Exodus? Did God change his mind? No, no, no. What you have happening in the Sabbath is very interesting. You have very specific relegation of observing the creation in Exodus, very specific relegations about honoring God and honoring others in Deuteronomy. By the time you get to Psalm 95, the Sabbath has come to mean symbolically rest in the promised land for the entire nation. And then when you land in Hebrews chapter 4, the Sabbath has become a symbol and a reference for eternal rest called heaven. God augments changes, morphs the significance and symbolism of the Sabbath. It's a workhorse illustration for the Lord. Back to the text. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. If you want to be a Sabbatarian, then you got to work six days, not five. Uh, So people who say that we have to do the Sabbath like they did in the Old Testament, I say then you can't have a weekend, you can just have a day. And there's no mention of vacations in there here either. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest, a Shabbat of the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim, God, your God. In it you shall not do any work. And then he gives this, it just goes on and on. It's, he's painfully making a point. He could have just said, you or anybody else or your, or, your, or your livestock. But listen to what he says. You want to say, I get it, Moses. I, I, I get it. I get it. You shall not do any work. You or your son... Or your daughter. He didn't say children. He's specific. Son or daughter. He makes a distinction so you don't think, well, the girls can work and serve the men. There are some dimensions of the Sabbath that are still in effect. (laughs) Women don't do all the work on Sunday either. That's a footnote that's somewhere in here. I just missed it. You or your son or your daughter. Or your male servant or your female servant. He goes, he doesn't say servants. Male or female. Very specific. Or your ox, or your, he could have said your animals, but he says your ox, your donkey, any of your cattle, no matter what kind of livestock you have, let them rest. Or your sojourner, that's possibly a slave that's hired in from a foreign land that you're using as a hired laborer who stays with you, could even be a visitor, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you do. Now we find it. You are called to come and rest. And if you are called to come and rest, you cannot rest at someone else's expense. Now we find the central command that was the first command in Exodus. You shall remember. But here he doesn't say remember the creation. Here he says remember where you came from. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. How many times have we said in our study of Deuteronomy that the the exodus becomes a metaphor for salvation in the Old Testament and in the New? So if we can jump ahead to some practical application, when it comes to a day of rest, we should remember our salvation. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. Look what he did for you. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. What does that mean? Well, it has some physical ramifications, and it also has some spiritual ramifications. What I want to do is draw back from some high altitude and look at eight implications for obedience. Get this. From the Sabbath law, not of the Sabbath law. You hear the difference? Implications for obedience that we can get 
from looking at the Sabbath law, not implications that we have to obey the Sabbath law because we're nowhere told in the New Testament to honor and obey the Sabbath law. In fact, we'll find out in a minute that Jesus, on purpose, kind of poked his fingers in the Pharisees' eyes to do things on the Sabbath to make them know that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, not vice versa. This first one is the longest one. The, 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 the last seven will go very quickly, so let me give you some warning there. The first thing we need to look at, is, the first implication is that we should understand God as the ruler of our rules. God is the ruler of our rules. The principal theological truth to be seen here is that the, the, the changing theological emphases of the unchanging God He basically says, I can emphasize anything I want on any day because I'm God and you're my creation. When God addressed the issue of the Sabbath to the people at Sinai, back in Exodus 20, they had been freshly delivered from the Egyptian bondage. This is an entirely different group of people that heard the Sabbath law. When he readdresses the Decalogue here, 40 years, four decades have passed. People are at a different place geographically, spiritually, nationally, and theologically. And notice that the motivation for obeying the fourth commandment is slightly different. Even the accent of the practical application. In Exodus, remember the creation. Here, remember your salvation from Egypt. Let me just highlight again. Exodus 20, verse 11. Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out. Both places say remember, but they say remember two different things. Now, was the Old Testament Jew who received the, 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 the five books of Moses supposed to decide which one he was supposed to remember? No. He was supposed to remember both. There's an important theological fact to embrace here. Our unchanging God sometimes changes theological accents and emphases as revelation unfolds. He didn't give Moses the entire Bible, did he? He just gave him the law. By the time you get to Isaiah 53, he had a lot of understanding about the Messiah, but not the entirety of understanding about the Messiah. When you get to the Gospels, we had the narrative of Jesus, but we didn't have the explanation of the expansion of the church till we get Acts. When you get to the epistles, now we have the explanation theologically of the facts that happen in the Gospels. And when you get to the book of Revelation, you have the culmination of everything in the end of time when Christ comes to reclaim his title deed to the planet. That's an unfolding of Revelation. And as it unfolds, certain theological things get explained and expanded and accented differently. The Sabbath is definitely one of those things that is moving as it moves through the Scripture. Let me, let me say it again. Exodus 20, remember the creation. Deuteronomy 5, remember your salvation. Psalm 95, remember that the Sabbath really represents your Sabbath rest in the land, not being outside the land. And in Hebrews 4, the Sabbath, quoting Psalm 95, by the way, the Sabbath is now our eternal rest in heaven. God wrote it. It's God's law. He can change the accent on that theological emphasis as he moves through as he pleases. You can see the same thing with the Trinity, right? Let us make man in our own image. What does that mean? Well, you find out as Scripture progresses what that means in fuller dimensions, in fuller context. 
So by the time you get to Jesus, the Sabbath, the Sabbath has mutated, not only by God, who continues to say this is becoming a symbol for rest, but it's been abused and mutated by the Jews. It became a legalistic, superstitious way of honoring, obeying God, get this, that the Jews thought they could manipulate and control, which made them very happy about their obedience. The rabbis were interested in defining work and abiding by the letter of of the law in ways that they could control. Jesus was concerned about the spirit behind the law. The Talmud, for example, this is interesting. The Talmud, which is a a rabbinic group of literature that was explaining extra-biblical, extra-law laws uh, during the time of uh, Jesus. The Talmud teaches uh, that Rabbi um, uh, Yudah said this, if, and this is pedantic, but let me go through it, if on the Sabbath a man stepped into a loam, a pile of mud, he should wipe his feet on the ground and not on the wall, but... Rabbi, the, uh, another rabbi said, why should he not do that? Well, because it might be presumed that he plasters the wall and is engaged in the building of a wall instead of the ground. Then another guy says, nay, this is not an ordinary building, but more like a field of work if he wipes it on the ground. So they're going back and forth. If you wipe your foot on the ground, then you're doing a certain kind of work. If you wipe your foot on a wall, then you're doing another kind of work. You're building a wall or you're plowing the ground by doing that. That's work, and you're not resting, so you're not observing the Sabbath. And this goes on for pages, back and forth. Well, he wipes his foot on the ground. No, he wipes it on the wall. No, he should wipe it on this. And all of it is saying, well, some of that's work. Good night. I hope they didn't write this on the Sabbath because that was a lot of work. The rabbis taught that a small man should not wear a large shoe on the Sabbath, lest it fall off and he be compelled to carry it on the Sabbath. That would be work. He may, however, wear a large shirt, since there's no fear of his taking that off and carrying it. A woman should not uh, go out with a torn shoe, lest she be laughed at and carry the shoe. See, women cared about shoes back in that day as well. If a person were in one place and his hand uh, uh, was filled with fruit and he put forth uh, into another and the Sabbath overtook him in this position, uh, he would have to drop the fruit since if he withdrew his, his uh, hand from the one place to another, he would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. What's that talking about? His place. And if, if the Sabbath goes, if it turns dark and you're holding fruit and you drop it, is that work to pick it up? It's mind-numbing. Women... I just have to, I found this, didn't make this up. Women were forbidden to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because they might something, find something they didn't like, like a, this is, I'm just quoting, like a white hair and try to do something about it, which would be a grievous sin and arduous work. They even went so far as to say, a radish may be dipped into salt, but not left in it too long, since this would be similar to making a pickle. And that's work. You see what's happened, though? By the time of Jesus, the Sabbath has morphed into this don't do work as a legalistic way to think they could please God rather than the intended uh, uh, action by God, was, which was just rest. Just rest. 
Jesus' interaction with the first century Jews on the Sabbath is a study in and of itself. But for our purpose here tonight, I want us to make a couple of observations. First, nowhere in the whole, does the Holy Spirit record the Lord Jesus ever affirming the Sabbath law as still operative. Nowhere does Jesus say, keep observing the Sabbath. His disciples uh, did what was considered work on the Sabbath. He himself was accused of violating the Sabbath law for healing on the Sabbath, which was considered a work. But also notice that nowhere in the scripture is it recorded that Jesus officially terminated the Sabbath. It's interesting. Instead of terminating it, he changed its emphasis from cessation of work to an analogy of finding salvation itself. Now let's look at this for a moment. This is worth our study Look over at Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read you this whole account and one in Mark chapter 2 as well. You remember this, uh, going back up to verse 28, chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. That's the the piece of wood that would go across uh, the back of a cow or a bull to pull something. It was a, an instrument of labor. Take my lo- yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble, and so- humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, isn't that interesting? How would the Pharisees see this? Because they were following Jesus and his disciples around on the Sabbath, hoping they would do something for which they could accuse him. And Jesus does it. Pharisees saw this. They said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I love this. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, you remember the story, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated, the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with them, but for the priests alone? And by the way, David was not condemned for that. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and and are innocent? The priests work on the Sabbath. But I say to you, that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire companion, compassion rather, and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. He's saying this is about the heart, not the external. But watch, he goes on. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What a statement. This is my day. I will regulate it and command and violate and break it according to your superstitions any way I deem right and appropriate. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, I love this. It's just, they're there watching him. And he just says, 
dude, come here on the Sabbath. Stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Wow. If you had seen a withered, handicapped hand come to life, wouldn't you have said, wow? Jesus had just done something that violated their superstition. So instead of saying, wow, they said, let's conspire to kill him. Look over at Mark chapter 2. Another incident, verse 23. And it happened on the Sabbath. He was passing through the grain fields of the Sabbath. He and his disciples, another account, I should say, began to make their way along while picking the grain uh, the, the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read what David did in the show uh, with his companions when they became hungry, entered, entered the house? But look down at verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He says these both at the same time, but Mark picks up, probably through Peter's account, that he not only said the, uh, 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 that, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he also gave insight into why the Sabbath is even there in the first place. It was made for man and not for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. So the context of the New Testament understanding of the Sabbath is rooted in Psalm 95, Psalm 78, that generation uh, uh, in those 40 years between the Exodus and entering the promised land ceased to rely on God, believe in God. They were judged. They wanted to go in the promised land. The Sabbath became a symbol for rest in the promised land, getting out of the wilderness. The psalmist in Psalm 95 tells us that this led God to prohibit them from entering to his, entering his rest. And by the way, note that the, the emphasis of the Sabbath by Psalm 95 has changed between Deuteronomy's time and David's time. And in the same way, we are barred from entering into God's eternal rest when we cease for striving after God's favor and trust in Christ alone. It's a metaphor that he picks up and uses and reapplies, as it were. Now, we've talked about it. We have to take the time to simply look at it over in Hebrews chapter 4. Because this is the New Testament landing for the Sabbath understanding and Sabbath law. Remember, it's a quotation directly from Psalm 95. Verse 1, Hebrews 4. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that Sabbath. That's the same word, that rest. Just as he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Back to the creation. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. I love when the writers of Hebrews says, you know, somewhere in the Old Testament it says, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. Speaking of Psalm 95, looking at, back at the fourth commandment, 
Therefore, since it remains for some to enter and those who, are formerly, who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain, fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after uh, so long a time, uh, so long a time just as he had been, said, as had been said before, today if you hear his voice, quotation Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts for if Joshua had, been given, had given rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Wow, here we find something new. There remains a Sabbath. There remains in the New Testament a Sabbath rest for the people of God. But the one who, for, who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Look down at, look back over for a second at chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, he's talking about, um, well, you don't even need to go there. He's talking about the reflection of Psalm 95. What do you have here? Let, let's, let's put it all together. It's a complicated argument in Hebrews 4 built on Psalm 95, going back through Deuteronomy 5, anchored in Exodus 20. What is he saying? Really simple. God said, remember the Sabbath day that I'm the creator. Remember the Sabbath day that I delivered you. You need to rest. You need to rest one day of the week. In the same way that you rest one day of the week, one day you're going to rest in the promised land. You're going to stop milling around like, like um, sojourners and vagabonds. And in the same way that the Israelites found rest in the promised land, the believer will find rest in heaven. That's the progression. In the end, for the New Testament believer, the Sabbath has been changed by God in its emphasis from an observance to honor, honoring the creation and deliverance from Egypt, to a picture of resting in God through faith in Christ. You see that? It's no longer an observance. Now it's a picture. And this ultimate rest is consummated in heaven. Now, lest anyone say, hang on, I'm just uncomfortable with there not being a Sabbath day. I'm very uncomfortable with that. Well, let, let, me, let me appease your conscience for a second through the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Because of the gospel, therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink. That goes back to Acts chapter 10, right? Drops the sheep before Peter, rise, kill, eat, unclean animals. Pork was on there, praise God, for BLTs. Acts chapter 10, that's great. Let no one judge you because of food or drink or festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see what he's saying? Listen, that's shadow, that's symbol. The substance belongs to Christ. So why do we worship on Sunday rather than Saturday? As I said earlier, for the Christian, the moment of greatest significance is not the creation or the exodus from Israel, it's the resurrection. That's why we worship on Sunday. Now these next seven are going to go fast, so hold on. Another implication. Number two, remember God is a dictator of our days. He says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, Simply put, God has the right to tell us to do whatever he wants on whatever day he chooses, period. He's the dictator of our days. 
And on that day, we are supposed to remember and recreate. You put Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 together, those are the two central commands. Remember and recreate slash rest and allow the people around you to do the same as well. Cease from work. Rest is good. Don't you love to go to sleep when you're tired? When you get tired, just thank God that he gives you rest. And I think building on Hebrews 4, when we get tired and we feel that, that's a great reminder to remember, as much as I need rest from my day, one day I will have rest from this life. And that's called heaven. That's the symbolism in Hebrews 4 of the Sabbath. Number three, serve God as Lord of our labor. Serve God as Lord of our labor. In both places, it says six days you shall do work. There's a work ethic there. You get a day off because you've worked hard. Now, I understand we live in a, in a world that believes mostly in a five-day work week, and I know some of you who work about nine days a week. I get it. But there's something said here about working hard so that rest makes sense. Inherent in the Sabbath command is don't be lazy. Work hard. Do all your work. But if your work does not take six days, then don't bear the guilt. The point here is rest more than it is work. Number four, enjoy God as the reason for our rest. Enjoy God as the reason for our rest. Seventh day is holy to the Lord. Don't do any work in it. When God rested, by the way, you recognize God did not rest because he was tired. He didn't come to the end of the sixth day and say, I made man. That was a big time work day. Angels, don't, don't set the alarm in the morning. I'm sleeping in. I'm tired. He didn't rest because he was tired. He ceased from work. That's the meaning of rest. God ceased his creative work on the seventh day. By the way, on Saturday, that's when God rested. He made man on Friday. This was a way that the nation was to imitate God. By ceasing to work, it was to be a celebration of remembrance and worship. By the way, there's also a practical reality in the idea of the Sabbath, and that is rest is good. God knew this when he instituted the personal Sabbath. He also had a Sabbath for every seven years and one for, every, and for the nation every 50th year. Rest is good. Don't let your rest be a chore. Rest. It's good to rest. Plan to rest. If you're working hard, can I tell you this? Planning a good solid nap honors the Lord. It's good to rest. Number five. It's the biggest amen I've gotten. Number five, honor God as the echo of our employment. That's interesting. Honor God as the echo of our employment. Remember that whole catalog, don't let your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your sojourner, your ox, your donkey, your cow, don't let anybody work on that day as well. This is saying be humane to the people who work for you. There's something in here about employers. Give your people a day off. Be a humane employer. Care for your people. Even care for your animals. 
If you've been given the responsibility of being a boss at work, shepherd the responsibility not just of the work of your people, but shepherd the responsibility that you have to give them time off. Don't be stingy with vacation days. Don't be stingy with days off. Don't be stingy with giving them what they deserve if they work over time. Remember, at the end of Deuteronomy 5.14, it says that they may rest, what does it say, as well as you. Don't take a higher standard for your own work and work ethic than you do for the people who work for you. We've noted all along in our study of the Ten Commandments that we're, we're to promote the rights of God and others. And here the command is to protect the rights of others who might work for us to humane treatment. Even your animals, let them rest. Number six implication. I think this is really important. Celebrate God as centrality of creation. Celebrate God as the centrality of creation. Remember back in Exodus, we got to go back to pick that up from there. Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, in verse 11 he says, and the sea and all that's in them. Exodus 20, I should say. And he rested on the seventh day. It's to remember the creation and the creator. If we want to mimic something of this in our Lord's Day observance, it's not the Sabbath, but these principles are definitely applicable. What did you do today to think deliberately about God, about his creatorship, about his salvation? What did you do deliberately? Observe that he is your creator. Do something on your day off, on your rest. Do something to look at your world and just say, what a God. What a God who would do this. I was um, flying home yesterday from Los Angeles in the Shepherds Conference, just looking out the window, um, and uh, we were over you know, the upper parts of... Um, uh, the Utah and Arizona and the Grand Canyon area. I'm just saying how beautiful. And do you understand that's destruction? That's not even creation. That's, the, that's, an, that's a consequence of God's judgment in the flood, and it's beautiful. What will the new heavens and the new earth be like? I, I can't wait to see that. What a God. That's what we should be saying. What a God. Seven. Remember God's creation. Now we go into Deuteronomy. Savor God as the Savior of salvation. Savor God as the Savior of salvation. Just as they were called to remember that God saved them in the exodus from the burdens in Egypt. The New Testament equivalent of that is remember that God saved us from our sin. Sabbath changes emphases in the Bible as we saw earlier. For 40 years after the giving of the law at Sinai, the motivation shifted from remembering the creation to remembering salvation. I think remembering both of those is still a part of our day off and our rest. Last, number eight, trust God as the wisdom of our week. What does that mean? It means orient your week, not in a way as to be a Sabbath observers in a legalistic law sense, but orient your 
your week in such a way as to honor these principles that the Sabbath was intended to bless us with. Worship, remembrance, rest, humane treatment, fellowship. Looking at Jesus, he said, well, there may be reasons to work on your day off. Working even on the Holy Sabbath. Well, my sheep's in the ditch. It's cast. When, it, when, when a sheep rolls over, it's called, it gets cast, C-A-S-T. When a sheep falls on its ground, it, on the ground sideways, it can't get up. It'll die. If it rolls in the ditch upside down, it will surely die. And if it doesn't die quickly, it'll be sure prey for a predator who would come that night if you're going to wait till the non-Sabbath day to come and rescue it. Jesus is saying, that's just stupid. Get the, get the sheep out of the ditch. The disciples are walking along on the Sabbath, and they're hungry, and they pick a head of grain, and they eat it. He's saying, really? They're hungry. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then his ultimate accent, his ultimate exclamation point. I just love that the Pharisees following him around, trying to trap him into doing something on the Sabbath, like heal somebody, says, hey, come here, bring me your hand. Healed. I'm the Lord of this day, he said. I will do on it what I want if it's for God's glory and it's for man's good. You've turned this into a superstitious, legalistic holiday. And a whip to put people into line who don't follow your superstition. Yet, we can trust God as wisdom. Can I just say this? Taking a day off is good for you. There is no virtue in working 80 hours a week and seven days a week. There's no virtue in that. Oh, you can pound your chest and brag and say I have a high work ethic. And God says, where's your rest? Where's your remembrance? Where's your worship? So what do we learn from the Sabbath? We're not commanded to observe it as a part of Israel's constitution in the Ten Commandments. But I think the principles of the Sabbath are still in effect. Rest is good, ultimately symbolized in the rest we're going to have in heaven. I mean, can you think about that glorious thought, working, laboring, ministering, and then one day when we get to heaven taking a deep breath, and every day is full of things we love and want to do with our Savior. You say, will there be work in heaven? I think there'll be some kind. Adam was given work to do before the fall. Work is good, but so's rest. Taking a day off to remember, to worship, recreate, and to make sure the people around you get that same time off honors God. Still, we got to remember, Colossians tells us, let no man act as your judge in regard to the Sabbath. We're not Sabbatarians. Let me kind of say it. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. What do you do with the police officer, the fireman who has to work on Sunday? Can he take Monday and that be his Sabbath rest? Of course he can. We're taking Sunday. We're not taking Saturday. It's not the day of the week. It's the principles behind it that matter. We're not the nation of Israel, but God is still the ruler and the regulator of our weeks. 
I just feel guilty talking about this a little bit because I'm saying, make sure you rest. When some of us need to make sure we work, I can see some of the junior hires, senior hires, collegians saying, I just need to take a day off on Sunday. I know I got papers due, but I just need to rest. Rick said I should rest on the Lord's day. You're going to show up on Monday with that paper due and say, my pastor said I should rest. and It's not going to fly. Work hard so that you deserve and need a day off. You say, deserve? Is that the right word? If you apply it in the way that the Lord intended it, he gave it as a gift. It's a gracious gift. Lord's Day worship and Lord's Day rest can cherry pick principles from the Sabbath, but the Lord's Day worship and the Lord's Day rest that we participate in on Sunday is not the same as the Jewish Sabbath. Apply the principles and not the legalistic application. Work hard and rest. And rest as hard as you work. You'll be better for the Lord. You'll be better for the people around you. And when you take that day off, who God is and what he's created, what God's done and how he's saved. Those are the two accents from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. That's only possible for us if you know Christ as your Savior. Otherwise, it's just legalistic day regulations. This all reminds us of being in heaven with Jesus one day, Hebrews 4 says, rest forever. Cessation from the curse of work on this planet and the enjoyment of sanctified work with him, ruling and reigning in eternity. Father, we have been so tripped up by this commandment for so long. I pray that these texts give us some perspective and balance so that we understand how to work hard how to rest well, and how to remember you. Apply these principles to our heart in ways that only you can and in ways that will enliven our conscience and relieve us from legalistic feelings and yet cause us to be as hard at work as we are at rest and as hard at rest as we are at work. Instruct us, Lord that these commandments are not ways to be saved, but ways to work out our salvation in principle. We're grateful for these 10 words of Moses that teach us how to love you better and love and serve others better. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.